Good morning, dear colleagues. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Elisabeth Paar and Alexander Somek to you. It's a little bit strange today because all three of us are Austrians and all three of us are German native speakers, obviously. However, we decided to do this in English. First, because we hope that the topic is of interest not only for Austrians and German speakers, but also for the English-speaking world. And second, because the text that we are talking about today is in its original written in English um, and is published in an English journal, um, in an English-speaking journal. We are going to speak about this text here, um, A Letter from Europe, European Constitutional Law and its Digital Public Sphere. That was written by Elisabeth Parr and Alexander Somek. Elisabeth, just to introduce her very briefly, is a research associate at the University of Vienna in the group of Professor Stüger, whom some of you might know because he has been explaining the, the legal environment of COVID legislation in Austria quite extensively in this format. Uh, she's writing her PhD thesis. Uh, she started with this uh, at the University of Graz and is still continuing with this um, on a topic that is also of utmost importance to this podcast here. It's about artificial intelligence and its usage and the limitations of its usage um, in, um, in jurisdiction. Um, and she just recently spent a year uh, in Yale, where she achieved an LLM. Um, and, and this is also one of the, of course, interesting aspects of this conversation today, to talk to a young academic about the influence such a year might have on their thinking. Um, I'm quite confident that I learn a lot about that. And last not least, the second person I don't need to introduce to you, but still very briefly may introduce to you, is Professor Dr. Alexander Somek, who holds a chair um, on a public law on the one hand and legal philosophy on the other hand um, at the University of Vienna at the Juridicum. Um, we have been working together and I've been learning from Sasha for more than, I think, 30 years now. He is one of the most influential uh, voices in the German-speaking arena when it comes to constitutional law, public law, um, European law uh, and legal theory and philosophy. And he's the co-author of this text um, that we're going to speak about today. Um, you can read the text in full text on the internet. Um, it's available um, over there. Um, the, the link to it is in the show notes below. Um, so please feel invited um, to read it if you haven't done so yet in uh, preparation for this, um, for this talk today. Sasha, let's start perhaps by the most, uh, uh, most obvious question, which is, why did you write this and why did you write it with Elizabeth? Um, and why, Elizabeth, did you write it with Alexander? That would be the follow-up question then. That's, that's a tough question, yeah, to answer. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Vicky. Thank you for your very kind introduction. And I'm very pleased that you actually made me into a chair of public law as well, which is a I position that, that I, I know. I knew what it yeah. But I, I should hold it, actually. I should say <laughs> Okay. No, here, actually, here, Sasha, I, sorry, I, I do know the differences here, and I did that on purpose, so I did a okay, minimum of preparation that I... <laughs> okay, thank you, thank you. So, well, this was really kind, yeah? Yeah. All right. Uh, why did I, uh, why, why did we uh, write this article? Well, if, if I go back historically, with how it, it all began, it began with an invitation that I received all of a sudden from a PhD student at the... Uh, Yale Law School. Uh, the PhD student actually is from Argentina, if I remember this correctly, and it was clear to me that there was an international group um, putting together a special issue on questions concerning digitalization and constitutional law. And they, they turned to me, um, actually, with the idea in the back of the head that I would be a person that would that would write something that they, they would otherwise not receive from anyone else because uh, for some reason I, I seem to have the reputation to write unusual things. So um, this is the explanation why I actually replied to this message and said, well, yes, I have an idea for an article, but I wonder whether it is the right fit for this type of a journal, a journal that has a special focus on modern technology uh, in particular. And I thought, well, I've just read uh, my dear friend Armin von Bogdan's book on the structural transformation of public law. And the structural transformation of public law that he reconstructs in this book is something that is tied to the developments of public law discourse uh, that, are, um, that are caused 
by the existence of publicly available sites like the Verfassungsblock and other social media uh, that digitalization has um, participated in, in our world. It has changed, affected the way we communicate in public law currently. And this is something that a topic that interests me, namely the transformation of European public law that is underway currently, the culture of discussion that is changed on the ground of the fact that much of the discussion uh, that we encounter today in public law is conducted via social media. Blogs, Twitter, and other formats. But I'm old and almost extinct in a sense. And this, and this is the reason why I thought I should write this together with someone who has great expertise in this field. And the one person that immediately came to mind, not only because he was a student at Yale, or about to be a student at Yale when I received the invitation, but I was aware that she was going there, was Elizabeth Parr. Elizabeth Parr is working on issues uh, of artificial intelligence and the law, and she is very active on social media, more active than, than I am. So I thought she is the right person to ask to pursue this project so that uh, I'm not only just looking at the transformation of the intellectual format uh, of public law, but that my study of these transformations is informed uh, by uh, a factual background, yeah? uh, a solid set of facts that we can build upon when we write about the transformation of uh, public discourse or public law discourse in the European Union. And this is how it started. And then Elizabeth took over. And maybe Elizabeth wants to compliment what I've just said. Yeah. Sure. Well, thank you so much, first of all, for the invitation and the opportunity to speak about this paper here. Um, I think it's a very easy question in the sense of like, uh, why I agreed to write this, um, because I'm I'm a big, big fan of Alexander Samek, and he's been a very influential person and supportive person here in Vienna since I came here, and has helped me to fill the many gaps in legal philosophy that I that I came here with and still probably have. Um, so I was I was really really honored, um, and I think the two things are. Um, First, that, yeah, I do work in the field of law and tech, broadly speaking. Um, and so that was why I have a little bit of background there. Um, and the second one was probably that the both of us have, we, we, we were talking about, you know, the, the legal education system in Austria compared to outside from Austria, and then the way legal scholars, younger and uh, older generations articulate themselves. Um, and we were actually, yeah, thinking about even before I went to the US um, last year, um, about um, writing something together um, and on, on, on these topics, and we were not really sure which format and when which in which which way and I felt like that also as part of this discussion was like the implications of of, of social media and 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 uh, different different kinds of presenting yourself online not just as a human being or a citizen but also as a scholar and um, what that means um, particularly if you compare like um, the people that want to become legal scholars or are at the beginning of doing so and the people that have already accomplished that and are established. And um, yeah, uh, contrary actually to 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 probably the the impression Professor Samek has in the sense how active I am on social media, I don't think I I am that active. I'm now trying to because I do and we I think we'll continue talking about that um, in a bit. But um, I mean, it there is a lot happening and it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm now kind of pushing myself to be more active. I was, I think more passive and on the consuming side for, for much longer. Um, so yeah. So, so that's also kind of the, the background I want to say. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah. Pasha, go ahead. Then, I, yeah. Then, then let me just add to it a little bit. Then I made a first move. I presented a rough outline and then she filled in the details. And then the paper became far too long. Um, the result of which is that a more extensive version, uh, which is also slightly, well, completely different in many respects, yeah, will be published in another journal. So there's a, there's a follow-up paper going to, to appear relatively soon, European Law Open, uh, that focuses more actually on the fundamental legal questions than on the social media questions. Yeah, But we then cut all these papers or this long paper apart, transformed it into two papers. And this is the first paper that we are now publishing. And I've just looked at it and I, said, I thought, well, 
it's quite readable, yeah? Mm. At least by the standards of what I usually produce, it's quite accessible, yeah? Mm -hmm. So I think it has worked relatively well, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sasha, um, perhaps I start by challenging one of your your statements that you already made, and Elizabeth went into the a rather similar direction, if I didn't miss yeah. it, which is that uh, it has become more and more common that scholars in public law have become active on social media, and, and in particular that there is some kind of necessity to do that if you want to be uh, successful uh, in your own domain, which is an academic domain, obviously. Is that true, question mark? Because when I look into your and my colleagues at uh, senior level in our faculty, I would say that, I don't know, 80, 90% of them are not active at all, um, at least not in the sense that you can see them producing content uh, that is read by others. And my impression is also that when it comes to career path decisions that are taken um, in this faculty and outside this faculty for more junior people like Elizabeth, for example, this doesn't play a role at all either. If at all, it is a risk to do that because it might turn out that that you, you make political assumptions or political beliefs visible, which are not um, the opinion of the hiring committee or and so on. So there's plenty of risk to be taken if you do this as a more junior person. And therefore, I also see quite some junior staff um, at faculties such as ours abstaining from, from actively uh, producing tweets or, I don't know, writing on Verfassungsblog. Verfassungsblog might be different, by the way. Verfassungsblog is certainly something we need to talk about more right. intensely and separately. But when it comes to tweets or LinkedIn or whatever, I quite I don't see so many really uh, active young scholars there either. So is this true? Is the very first basic assumption uh, that there is this switch in how academic knowledge is reproduced correct? Is and if so, is this an empirical statement or is it just you know um, a guess? Elizabeth, would you like to go first or should I go? Um, yeah, I think I think much of what you said is true, and and to be fair, we actually did not conduct a actual empirical study of that. That's just based on um, impressions that we've collected. I do think, though, that um, specifically in the field of law and tech, and specifically if you want to make your scholarship or just like be known as a scholar, which is very closely connected to be known as a human and which is one of the parts of the paper where we try to point to that, that these things are getting more and more mixed up, um, that it is actually becoming more and more important. And um, the that was also what kind of pushed me to even like start Twitter. Um, and I think that Twitter and LinkedIn are in a way differently that I, I use them differently than I use, for example, like Instagram or Facebook or whatever. Um, um, is that I, it was a professor from Israel um, who was very active on, on social media um, um, who kind of convinced me of, of starting that and, and, and told me about the benefits. And um, now that I've been in the U.S. for a year and that I see how scholars there are communicating, that's how you become noticed and that's how you become seen. And um, it's, it's, it doesn't mean necessarily that um, it's, you know, it, 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 it gives you like kind of a, a freedom to not publish in the traditional formats anymore, specifically not if you're working in Austria or Germany um, or, or generally more in Europe. Um, but it, it, it's becoming a, a more and more significant um, part. And it's it's I mean, they're they're people I'm, I'm thinking, for example, um, about a young assistant professor that's now working at Stanford. Um, I think one of the main reasons she's there and and and, and she, she went there apart from from her scholarship was her presence online. She even like went to do a podcast um, and and even professors in, 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 in very like accomplished faculty. I'm, I'm thinking of like not just Scott Shapiro, but also like Samuel Moyne or, or like I could name a lot, they have a very, very substantial following and they're tweeting like all the time in a, in a way that is much more interactive and, and, and sharing their personal opinions compared to, to what I would ever do. Um, there's also, I think, big chunk of, 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 of people that are using it in like a medium way in the sense that they will just 
announce that they did something, um, which is kind of what I'm trying out right now. It's like you announce you do this, you announce you do that, you publish that. That's also a very safe way of doing it. And I think um, what you also mentioned with regard to it being dangerous. Yes, totally. Um, I think I overthink posting something on any of these mediums, maybe even more than I think about like whether a sentence I write in my thesis is correct, because I feel like it's much more immediate, it's much more dangerous, it can be much more misunderstood, and 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 it's going to be out there in one way or the other. Um, so yeah, it's it's there. Are obviously, also different degrees on how you use it, but I do think that it's becoming becoming more and more. And I and I do think that it is somewhat a a maybe I don't know what kind of pressure it is, but it's definitely like a case of like fear of missing out. Um, and um, yeah. So, so I, I, mm. I think it's, it's, it's real based on just the conversations also and what I've seen online. Mm. So Vienna mm -hmm. and Austria are just late. <laughs> no, let, let me try to put it a little, yeah. a little bit differently. Mm. I'm using the wonderful term that was used by John Austin when he wrote his introduction to jurisprudence, the province of jurisprudence determined. There are two provinces of public law, in a sense. One is the local province. The public law discourse that looks to Austria, decisions by the Austrian Constitutional Court, and how Austria is related to the European Union, for example. And then there is a different province. That's the international province of public law. And the international province of public law is composed of a number of scholars who do a variety of things. The first thing that the, the, the people in the province of international public law do, and I'm not talking about public international law, I really talk about constitutional law, international constitutional law. The first thing that the people do, and I think uh, Elizabeth uh, alluded to my dear friend Yanif Rosnay in, in Haifa, because he's a prominent a proponent of this type of approach, they do comparative constitutional law. And that's their, major, that's their major field. Comparative constitutional law with the awareness that the comparison of um, the practices of various constitutional courts is something that is of increasing relevance to constitutional adjudication on a worldwide scale. This is the international, this is the world of modern international constitutional law. And it is a world that is not detached from practice. It is not a merely academic discipline. It is of relevance to what courts do. Then the second part of this other province, the international province of constitutional law, is composed of those who interact on the European level with each other, scholars from different European countries. Prominent among those are a great number of scholars from Germany, I'm thinking of Franz Mayer, for example, who is a professor of European Union law, I imagine, but he works on issues of European constitutional law as well. And he's one of these persons who are present on social media, who publish on blogs, who, who uh, send off one or the other or issue one or the other tweets occasionally. They are the ones who use social media. So we're talking about two different provinces, and I'm not, I'm not doing this with a sense, not saying this with a sense of condescension towards the local province, because they are indeed two different provinces. Both are provincial in a sense, because they have their own uh, sense of what is relevant and what is irrelevant. They have their own audiences that they talk to. These are separate spheres in a sense that exist. But we have to recognize, and this is something that is important and is something that's perhaps not recognized uh, uh, in, in the manner that it, that, that it would merit yeah? in, in Austria, we, we possibly do not pay enough attention to, to the fact that there is a second province of public law that is international public law. Hmm. And I think it is true for this, for this for empirically true for the sphere of international public law, that in order to be someone, you have to publish on blogs, uh, you have to make contributions to discussions that are conducted over the internet or use some other form of social media communication of which Elizabeth knows more than I do. So this is how I would put it. And the second sphere, the international sphere, I'm, I'm, I'll be finished in a second. The, the second sphere of international, uh, of international public law is far more similar 
to the world as it exists in the world of public law as it exists in the United States. And in the United States, I think there is no more public law without social media. Mm. So. Let me, if I may, Sasha, just challenge this a little bit in two directions. Sure. The first one would be, um, it might be that in this province of international public law, the, the dominance of what you call social media um, is simply due to the fact that the internet makes texts accessible in, right. in, in that are published um, and, and that were put into, you know, silos for 200 years because yeah. they were edited by publishers with quite strict copyright rules, making it more or less impossible uh, to, 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 to get the proper information if you are outside the jurisdiction. So perhaps this is not so much about social, but it's more about access and the Internet as being the right instrument to, to get proper and quick and easy access to information no matter where it's going to be published, so that we are talking about an issue here, which is a copyright-related publishing culture issue. That would be my, 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 my first challenge or my first question. Okay. Uh, and, and, and the second one now, going back to, to, to your statement or your emphasis on international public law, um, emphasizing public in this statement so much, because when you when you look into this from Elizabeth's perspective or any other more junior um, academics, there are at least two problems coming with this. First, it's a problem per se to state today that something is part of public law, in my view, because uh, the, you know, the uh, the 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 differences um, are are decreasing, and secondly, more importantly, it's a career risk, an additional career risk, if you not only need to emphasize on public law, but on top of this, then need to decide on whether you do this more in a national tradition, meaning no <laughs> no LinkedIn, right, <laughs> or or whether you try to do this in an international dimension, meaning please put yourself on Twitter immediately, right. Um, and and I'm I'm not that sure whether whether we shouldn't talk a little bit more about uh, the, the the costs the career related costs coming with those assumptions that people like you and me very easily can draw because uh, there is no risk coming with this for us apart from not being really read but it's much more complicated for the for the more junior people. Yeah, well, uh, your first question was whether this is a question having to do with access to information, yeah? Mm -hmm. And that you need to use the internet and the sources that are available over the internet in order to conduct the type of research that you want to do in comparative constitution. Well, that's true. I, I concede this point, but I add uh, that it also alters a little bit um, the attitude with which public law is conducted. Um, The debates that we that we encounter increasingly, and it has to do, of course, with the developments of constitutional law and constitutional systems in the European Union and on a worldwide scale. The debates that we encounter on, in the international province are increasingly concerned with the question of constitutionalism in general, by which I mean, it is the question what constitutionalism is about as a project and whether uh, it is worth to defend these projects in light of certain transformations that we encounter currently in countries. And I'm not just talking about Poland uh, and in Hungary, but we can also look at the United States and we can look at developments in Latin America possibly. So there is something, there's a joint focus that unites the people who conduct research uh, in, in the province of international public law, and I would still say it is international public law because constitutional law is a major focus. We are not talking so much about administrative law there, but it's an interesting question to discuss whether administrative law can become in, similarly internationalized in the future. But let me go back to constitutional law and constitutionalism project. The common focus is the meaning, the significance, and the value of constitutionalism that is at the end of the day discussed here. Yeah. And this is a common focus. And this is a focus that, of course, transcends national boundaries. So it's not just about access to information. It is also a topic that is of common relevance. It is something that concerns us all on a transnational scale. And I think that's that's the interesting thing. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to to pursuing your career in the national context, I think that Elizabeth would have more to say on this because, as you as you will know, I've had a very unusual career trajectory, and I cannot say that I'm a model case for anyone. Uh, but maybe Elizabeth can talk address a little bit these issues that be raised, whether it is something that harms possible people in their national province if they are too active on the international level. Sure. Um, yeah, totally. Um, I think with regard maybe first quickly to the to the first question about just sharing information, I think it also just um, is connected maybe that like other markets work differently in the way that they have like journals in a clear ranking of where it's best and where it's worst to publish. And then they care about like how much citations they get, like really like in a quantitative sense, not in a qualitative sense, which you can criticize, um, but that's just how it works. And I mean, that's something we also know in Europe um, from other disciplines as well. So this kind of like pushing your own work constantly on people on multiple like occasions also comes with that. And that directly feeds into like which jobs you're going to get uh, on different markets. And um, so so that's that's maybe one aspect. And the second aspect is, is um, if you compare it to simply just, you know, making your work available online through like SSRN or whatever, which I, by the way, have not don't don't have yet, but I, I'll, I'll try to make as well. I think Twitter does or LinkedIn or whatever has a different function in a way that you can interact with people very quickly. You can add some notes. You can give like a personal impression um, I'm on it and they, they can also directly contact you. And I mean, also like if with regards to this paper, I, if I if I understood it correctly, like the reason we're talking about it now is because I tweeted about it, um, which mm-hmm. again, like kind of shows um, like how to make it public. And um, yeah, and then with regard to to career in general, it's it's definitely a challenge because I think um, being a lawyer, being a legal academic, um, it has always kind of come with a idea of with I mean there have always been successful exceptions and both of you have like are good examples for that, but it generally comes with the idea you learn a legal order and then you stay within your you know, legal system, and then you work there, and you can't just like transfer from the, from market to market. And the thing is that I think, especially with challenges that are coming up, um, which are called interdisciplinary challenges, uh, thinking not just like climate change, but also like law and tech, or I mean, we've seen it now with like challenges with the health system, with the pandemic, um, all these all these topics are topics that just like don't stop within a legal or like at the borders of a country or at the borders of a legal system. They don't. And also it just requires not just to, you know, look at specific legal regulations in a very specific country, but also to, um, to, yeah, to do that uh, on a more, on, on a broader scale. And um, I mean, even with regard to my own PhD thesis, which I'm writing in German about specifically the Austrian constitutional law and like, Um, like a very like I guess pretty dogmatic way of looking at it but even that like there are so many questions that have been raised that are equally raised in other countries Um, basically in any country that has like the principle of the rule of law um, in the way that we have it in 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 a similar fashion so it's 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 sad that I will try to think in some ways that I hope will progress this discourse and it's not accessible because it's it's in German and it's in a book that um, other countries or other legal systems don't have access to. So I will try to to like get my core thesis out there in English as well and try to detach it from like very specific provisions. And um, so that's that's like the content, I think, element. And the second thing is um, um, with regard to career risks, I mean, I think I, I, I alluded to it a little bit is that um, you have to also fulfill the other requirements that are very specific for each market. Um, we here have like the postdoc stage after you finish your PhD, where you write another big book, and then you have like other smaller things which you're supposed to be publishing, and that's a long process. And at the end, you get uh, the right to kind of apply then for chairs, I guess, um, uh, or the right to teach. Um, it's not a right, it's a venue. Um, anyways, um, but, you know, that means that you have to commit yourself to a market um, because otherwise you will not have the time and energy to do it in, in the in the quality level that is required of you if you want to do it in a in a good yeah. way. 
um, other other markets require very, very different things of you. Like they don't really care that you published a book, let alone a, a book about a very specific, I don't know, law or, or, or code and, and you publish it in a language they don't understand. They want you to publish, I don't know, for example, in the US law reviews and you do that, but you don't, you don't write another, you don't, most of these people, they like they do their JD and then they go on and write law reviews. Um, so it also like, requires legal scholars to make a decision um, very early on in their career. I don't know where I'm going to like where I'm going to end up or what I want to work on and which like universities are going to help me to do that or give me the, the resources to do that or help me make the connections with people that also work on these questions. But, you know, in, in like one year or whatever, I have to make a decision in the sense of like, OK, do I commit myself to the Austrian legal academic market, which has always been kind of the case? Or do I do I go and try to 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 enter another market? And I think it's it's a very. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a system that is not really appropriate for the kind of problems we're trying to solve here, and we're not just trying to solve as like the people of Austria, but but challenges that are at least as big as the EU market um, or even beyond that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the the challenge I think that that I'm facing right now, at least. Vicky, I don't yeah. want to cut you off. I just wanted to add something. Is this okay, or do we have? Oh, oh, oh. of course. Time for it? Yeah. Uh, it is possible to straddle uh, the gap between the two provinces, and I will give you an example for it. Uh, and, but this example demonstrates that you have to raise what you do in Austria to a certain level of generality so that it attains uh, uh, the significance uh, that, that makes it visible on the international level. I give you, give you a concrete example. There's a young scholar, his name is, uh, his first name is Ulrich, and you may know him. Uh, of already. course. I, Ulrich Wagrandl. But Ulrich Wagrandl has done something quite wonderful. Uh, building upon the great uh, contributions that my dear friend Ewald Wiedering has made on the... He has given a presentation in Copenhagen on the genius of the Austrian constitution and Austrian constitutional scholarship with the beautiful title, The Constitution Without Qualities. And it was presented by, um, by a man by the name of Ulrich. Yeah, isn't this, isn't this fantastic? So this is something that he did. And what happened afterwards is that some of my colleagues uh, from various countries contacted me, congratulating me on uh, on having such a promising junior scholar in Austria who has given just such a such a perfect presentation that made the ethos and the spirit of Austrian constitutional law all of a sudden accessible to people from other constitutional traditions who have no idea how we are working. So this is something you can do. You can straddle this gap. And I think Ulrich Wagner is a good example. He's more senior than Elizabeth, but I think Elizabeth is is going into the same direction yeah, or in a similar direction in the future, how you can actually straddle the two gaps and you don't harm yourself. Actually, you're doing something for your own constitutional tradition because you increase the understanding on the international level. That's a good thing. Yeah. So, sorry. Okay, so I, I, I'm sorry to say I'm not sure whether I'm so positive about this, Alexander, and I would like to repeat what Elizabeth already said in, in my words now, which is first, there's a decision to make whether you write in German or in English, and it has implications if you do it in both languages. And if you write your first work in German, uh, and then you end up in the situation about which you are writing, by the way, and I was quite astonished about the positive tone that that I read in your article about the second book, the Qualifikationsarbeit, the 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 habilitation, right? Oh, oh, oh. You again, you again have a choice to make, which is again the language, and in particular, you need to make the choice that you are dedicating, I don't know, ninety percent of your energy and your work time into something which is going to be read by twenty people. 50 people, right? So it will be, if you are lucky, it will be the two in the hiring committee you apply for that will read your book. And outside of this audience, nobody, it, it, it will, it will rotten somewhere in the library. And you can go that way or you can go another way, which would be try to make some impact on, on an international arena for people who are not necessarily from your own domain and your own legislation 
But if you go that path, it will not it will not lead you without without 20 years of interruption that you, Sasha, and myself can easily talk about because both of us were affected by this. It will not bring you into a full professorship in your home legislation without 20 years of interruption and full risk coming with this. And I'm I'm astonished that you and me, we were in this 20, 30, 40 years ago uh, situation, much easier than, by the way, because there was no social media and there was no Twitter and there was not this additional question to answer, which is how how much do I make myself visible with my own opinions? In our case, Sasha, it was the Juridicum, which was another scandal, right? <laughs> but I mean, this was a very, very small scandal in comparison with, you know, putting something um, on Twitter. But 40 years of no change, right? Things have become more complicated here, um, but not easier. And I'm, I'm just asking myself whether, whether this is because we are just, you know, we need to, to wait for another two or three generations or whether this is because Austria is different from everything or German speaking countries are different from the rest of the world or whether this is just a crisis we are in the middle in from. Yeah. And if I were Elizabeth, I would be quite some, I would be really concerned about this because it would have direct impact on what I'm going to do. I am for the record. <laughs> If anyone is wondering, um, <laughs> um, no, I, I think I think um, 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 that's totally right. Um, it it comes with a lot of risk, but I um, I think um, Sasha wanted to say something. First. No, if, if you want to go first, yeah. Uh, to defend the There are many issues that that uh, Nicholas raises. Yeah. First, of course, I I have conducted my research in the naive belief that international is better than national. This is a questionable assumption, yeah? I, 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 I don't want to begin to defend it because, I, you know, my excuse is now I was socialized uh, at, at, the, at the stage where well, Keynesian social welfare states were transformed through neoliberalism and everything has had to become international. International was better and Anglo-America uh, the Anglo-American world was the model for everything. And as a result of this, I actually worked all this on the basis of the premise that the more I'm capable to publish in high-flying international journals, the more recognition I would receive on a worldwide scale. You don't receive it. This is what I've learned in Austria. Not at all. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because people don't care. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, there is, it is still possible, I think, to transform our system and to make it more international. There's a possibility. I don't know how likely it's going to happen, but it's possible. But it depends on the choice of your topic for habilitations, qualifications. Let me give you a more recent example. A few years ago, I reviewed uh, the Habilitationsschrift by Anna Bettina Kaiser. Yeah, Anna, Anna Bettina and I were here, present, talking to one another in this format yeah, a few years ago about this, this topic. Ausnahmeverfassungsrecht, the state of exception. She's written a fabulous comparative study in German. Had she written it in English, uh, it would be a bestseller in the literature, in a sense. But she had to write it in German, unfortunately. She, uh, the, the big uh, challenge that she's confronted with, and she confided this in me, is uh, to find a publishing company, well, the pub there would be a publishing company in England that would be ready to publish it, but apparently uh, they are reluctant to do so because, yeah, well, it's difficult to finance a translation, you have to pay the translator and so forth. So this is all, this is all very expensive. But her work, this is not just about German constitutional law, but about the history of the state of exception, the different regimes that exist in constitutional systems to address uh, ex exceptional situations. All of this is in the book. This is a book of global relevance. And I think it would serve the reputation of German scholarship even better if the Germans understood that this has to be written in, uh, in, in English in the first place. Mm. There is, I have a slim hope that before long, uh, German uh, legal culture will realize that it is necessary to use an alternative, the global alternative language as well. Not exclusively, of course. It doesn't mean that German is a 
as a Wissenschaftssprache, it would be abandoned. I would be saddened by the fact if this happened. Yeah, but I think it has to be complemented, and the sense for, for, of, of this is something that we have to develop. Now, mm-hmm. I, I cannot see um, Nikki right now, but I imagine that he has a skeptical expression on his face, and I, I agree in a sense with him that right now the prospects are not so good as they used to be some 10 years ago, perhaps. Yeah? We are, we're becoming more national for some reason, yeah? currently. Uh, globalization appears to be in big trouble and over, even though there's no alternative to it, I think. But uh, that's a different matter, how things look right now. But I think there are good reasons uh, to support people in the project to write public law doctoral dissertations or or habilitations in English because there is this alternative international province of international constitutional law where the most exciting things happen because we push everything to a level of higher generality there. Okay, I'll stop that. Okay, should I follow up? Um, Yeah, I I, I think um, even though it's really scary altogether, um, at least at the career stage that I'm in, and I think I shared that with a lot of colleagues, I do have like hope that all things are slowly changing. Um, I I think a lot of us, and I I'm just coming back from the uh, young Staatsrechtslehrertagung, which I don't think that there is like proper English translation for that that can capture that. Um, but they're not just a topic about interdisciplinarity and um, internationality, also just the opening statements, um, even from 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 an actual professor already, um, we're very critical about like how we treat each other and how we communicate with each other. And there was a lot of, you know, going back and forth about that. Um, I also met a lot of really great colleagues that are, you know, um, trying to combine the traditional approaches with more like interdisciplinary topics or applying them in 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 in, in ways. And I, I want to be very clear that I, I do think, especially now that I've seen for a year how US con law is is taught and 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 done in a way, um, obviously um, not in depth, but like, you know, have a first impression. We do a lot of things really, really well. And we have very great like instruments of like how we go about when we address issues. And, 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 and I, I've over and over again there tried to try to kind of um, push also like my way of, of, of doing it or the way that I was taught to do it um, on, on people there. And, and I, I think that, you know, it, we would all just really much benefit as cheesy as this sounds, if we like, you know, take the best of, of, of both worlds in a way and, and, mm-hmm. and, and are just like open to combine that. And I think the real issue or something that I'm struggling with, like I, the one thing I'm certain is that I want to be a legal scholar. Like I love the work. I love to do the research. I love to do the writing. I think it's like one of the greatest things. And and I, I'm extremely passionate about it. I didn't expect that. It just like kind of happened while I was starting my PhD and, and, and in the process of it, I fell in love with it. And I know that I, I want to do that. Um, I think what what's really scary is just... Um, you know, becoming a successful part of the community, it just comes with so many um, like soft laws as well within the community that you are just not aware of unless you are already like coming from a family of like um, legal scholars or I don't know, which I, I don't. Um, so you're like, like very carefully trying to figure out like what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do and for what reasons you're not supposed to do that. And, and every time, even, even now this, like that's scary. Um, um, and, 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 also, that's kind of what I get when I was talking to younger colleagues in the way where like they move away from things they're really, really passionate about and writing about to things that are, you know, um, strategically smart to write about. And, you know, you have to do that for, for a few years. And I just I'm, I'm not sure whether that will as 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 a whole community will get us in the right direction. And it's also like it, it has a second dimension to it in the way that law is taught. Um, and how we communicate with our students and how we listen to them and how serious we take their ways of speaking um, and and the questions that they ask and the approaches that they have, that really is different um, at the at the law school I've been in the US compared to what I've experienced here. Um, 
And, and that, again, is also another aspect that I'm, I'm just very, very passionate about with regard to, to teaching, which is often overlooked when it comes to legal scholarship, by the way, because everybody just cares about what you publish. They do want you to teach and they do want you to teach well, but like it's not you're not going to get a chair because you teach well. So um, that's also another <laughs> it's also another element that I feel like it's and that's also where our responsibility, I feel like, as, as a as a as legal scholars come in, because we do raise the next generation then of of or you are, I'm not like, I'm not in a position yet to do that, but um, of not just future legal scholars, but also judges and, 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 and attorneys and like anyone that has anything to do with the law, basically. And we can really, really shape that. And I know I've been greatly, greatly shaped by really, really wonderful people. Um, um, not just my, my boss here, but also just mentors I met along the way and people that have uh, spend much more time than they needed here in Austria to to explain stuff to me and answer questions and listen to me and all my 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 fears about what to do next or whatever and they they do shape me and they do shape the way I think and yeah if I may um, just another question of quite quite connected to the one um, so in in my reading if I may provoke you a little bit here now in my re in my reading some parts of the text um, are, are are intrinsically conservative and not going um, far enough in a way. Um, and and Sasha, you were already stating now that we should open things more when it comes to to English as as yeah. as a proper language. But perhaps let me let me use just one example here why why I think that this is possibly not uh, the only problem we should talk about here. And this is specifically about the Habilitationsarbeiten or the second book, what you're writing in the text. And I would like to quote this uh, literally here. So um, I quote now, um, this format of legal knowledge is quite different from the type of knowledge that needs to be produced in order to make it to the front row of legal knowers in the first place. So this meaning the proper, the academic, the traditional way of legal knowledge in contradiction to this, yeah. you know, this quick, uh, speedy, uh, political yeah. tweeting or, or whatever. So this this is something different. It is manifest in what German-speaking countries call qualifikationsarbeiten, such as a PhD thesis and a habilitation. In the ideal case, such works put legal phenomena into a larger perspective, for example, by accounting for their proper legal construction. The works need to be thorough, comprehensive, and systematic. They represent the type of works which are supposed to help us find our way in the legal system and not be better at pleading in a court of law. They are about drawing an intellectual map and not about using it in order to get from A to B. That's the end of the quote. Okay, so this is the two of you writing, and my my question now is more a provocation than the question yeah. would be. This is nineteenth century self understanding of of German speaking legal doctrine, completely missing that we are in a much more complex, interdisciplinary, uh, very very challenged environment where legal, where legal knowledge needs group work interdisciplinary input, being able to listen to others and all this, which is not necessarily put into a book then, then I repeat this, is going to be read by 20 other people who went just through the same, <laughs> through, through the same punishing exercise, uh, recruiting then the, the, the 10 of the next generation still willing to do that and making the whole discipline smaller and smaller in its relevance for a society, which is exactly what we are seeing at the moment, in my view. So this is probably <laughs> provoking enough now. So, so please kill me for that now. <laughs> well, well, do you want to? Would you like to kill him, Elizabeth, or should I do it? <laughs> I, I just really just have one one thought, and then I'll let um, Professor Zalmik take over, because I think he has much more to say than I do, um, because he went through that process twice, whereas I have not. Um, um, I just want to, I think there is a real importance to having the time and energy to spend many years working on one specific question um, as uninterrupted as possible. And that's something I've been struggling with with my PhD thesis as well, because you're constantly supposed to talk about it without actually doing it. Um, so and also with regard to and that's maybe a bit anecdotal, but like with regard to my thesis, I write about the constitutional limits of AI in court proceedings, as you pointed out at the beginning. And when I started out, like 
three, four years ago, I had a very like use case specific approach. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna like look at, I don't know, these like five, six, seven applications of AI, which mm-hmm. at the end of 2018 or beginning 2019, were not as sophisticated as today. That's another challenge. Um, and then I'm gonna see, okay, can the judge use them or can they be used in court? And is that in accordance with our constitutional provisions? Mm-hmm. And as I was working on it, I just like discovered that we have like so many underlying questions that we need to like first address that have never been really, really addressed in depth because we never had to. Like, what is a judge? Uh, what's the value of the judge being a human? What does it even mean that the judge is a human? What what comes with that? Um, which abilities do we even expect the judge to have, not just with regard to applying the law, but also with regard to interacting with the humans in court. And then you look at like empirical research, also like in the US, how is legitimacy created? Like, how does it matter that another human um, is interacting with another human in front of the court is sees them, hears them, like beyond even our, our like how we then encoded. Um, and my goal right now also with my thesis is actually to, and that's why I also don't call my own PhD thesis as an interdisciplinary work, because it's not, even though I have a big chapter about AI, which I spent like two years reading textbooks just on AI, just to have a proper like basis. But in a sense, I'm just building up on that. But my work is to really map out what our our constitution as it is right now, it can be changed any like basically any day under specific abilities. We have a lot of flexibility here in Austria compared to the US, obviously. Um, But like, like a map uh, in the sense of like, okay, these are like the, 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 the limits. And then when a specific AI application comes and it comes and it's here and, and, and we are thinking about, is it good that we apply or like that we use it in court? We then have this work, hopefully both in German and in English um, to go to and be like, okay, somebody has thought a couple of years about that. And, you know, for that and that reason thinks it's not a good idea. Like it's going to interfere with this and this. So A, are we going to change our constitution or B, are we going to like not do that? Um, and so I think, and, and that type of work you can't do just like between two conferences while you're tweeting and giving like your first impression, like that's not how it works. It takes a very, very long time. And, and, and we're extremely privileged that we get to do that. And, and I don't think we should give that up. We just need to find ways to make it like um, to combine it with the challenges we're facing and how we can connect more on a more international level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. First observation. I think many of the anthologies that are published as a result of the cooperation between different disciplines, different universities all around Europe that are based on some kind of joint research project are far less studied than Habitationsschriften. Yeah, because <laughs> the people write these things because they attended conferences and they attend conferences in order to yes to exchange ideas and to meet with one another, but they attend the conference uh, not because they have a a new idea uh, or something that is on their mind that they want to share with everyone else. No, just the roots only participate in these research projects and the kind of scholarship that you get is something that reflects this relatively boring routines of scholarship. So mm-hmm. I don't want to, I, I really, I, I really want, want to defend the value of habilitations against this other type of interdisciplinary scholarship that uh, it, uh, results in this relatively incoherent, always very incoherent anthologies. That's one thing. Second thing, it is not true that all habilitations are unfortunate books. Yeah, it, it may be the case that my habilitations have been unfortunate books because they didn't receive the attention that they would merit. But at the same time, there are counterexamples. Think of uh, Robert Alexis' theory of basic law, basic rights. This is a, a world's best-selling book in the field, yeah, I would say. It is the book that has put uh, the whole conception of fundamental rights that underlies the jurisprudence of the, uh, uh, of the federal, federal constitutional court between the covers of two books. It's all there. So this is a fantastic book. And it's still a Habitationschrift. So Habitationschriften can be fantastic books. Third point that I want to make here, map drawing. I want to defend map drawing, the type of legal scholarship that gets us oriented in the discipline, historically and conceptually, that tells me where I am when I explore a certain question, from where I come and where we can go in the future. 
and that doesn't use the resources that are already available to solve one particular problem, but actually rises above the level of particular problem solving. Because if we stayed at the level of particular problem solving, what we do at the university would be in no way different from what lawyers and judges do in their court offices. And I think there is a special place for the type of knowledge that is produced at a university and is different in a sense in quality, not that it's superior, but it is a different type of knowledge that we produce at the university. And it's the type of knowledge that actually provides us with the map that we can use in order to find our way uh, in the world of law. And I want to defend it. It is something that is, that is important. And yes, there is an irony in it, and irony may, may, be un may understate it, actually, what is at stake here. There's an irony in it that you have to be a map drawer before you get to the level where you can provide expertise on very, very special issues and have the credibility to do so in a competent manner because you have demonstrated your ability to produce ground path-breaking work, yeah, in a yeah. sense. Yes, I, 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 see this, I see the difference, yeah. I think I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't. I don't think, Sasha, that we are too much in disagreement here. Um, in particular, when it comes to your third point, which is the map drawing point. Uh, the the question that I, however, have is about who is going, who is supposed to be a map drawer, and who is supposed to understand the map. And we have a very, very monodisciplinary tradition in, in particular, in German-speaking countries. And the opposite to this would not be the anthology bringing together fifteen. Uh, uh, senior professors having yes. just the 27th presentation in their monthly activities and that is put into a book but it would be taking more seriously an attempt to understand what other people in academia are doing and how they are ticking and what they are working on and this is a tradition mm -hmm. not really fostered by the uh, by the traditional way of how legal academic careers are built and I find this striking in your text that this component is not really reflected this is what mm -hmm. I wanted to say mm -hmm. right yeah. we have a we have and and we are losing ground as 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 a discipline in my reading at least when it comes to problem solving competences in a society one one brief reply we have not written this as austrians this is not the austrian perspective yeah. we've written this as european legal scholars and the European legal cultures differs. If, if you look to the Netherlands, for example, it's a different world. Absolutely. Us, yeah? uh, but they don't write second books, right? So for, perhaps for that reason, right? I mean, there is no second book in, 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 uh, in, 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 in the Dutch academic career, not necessarily yeah, at least, right? right. And, yeah, and, yeah, and, okay. and there is quite some emphasis on interdisciplinarity and on internationality in career paths in the Netherlands, different from where we come from here. But the point was not particularly about the second book. It was about the map drawing exercise. This was the point. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth, sorry. <laughs> yeah. All good. Um, no, I, I just want to say, especially with regards to the Netherlands, I think that they are very much close to the US market and they do publish a lot of also like something similar to US law review articles. And these law review articles, they're very different from what we would publish as a paper in a journal here because here we probably write, I don't know, 10, 15 pages-ish. Um, and it has a very different way of going about. And you have a lot of limitations where you cannot, um, unless it's a very, very tiny topic, um, you cannot really unfold your ideas. Whereas in a US law review articles, I mean, they're 70, 80 pages long, and they really make a point of first, like kind of um, drawing actually like, uh, writing out this map of like where are we like who has participated mm -hmm. on this question already so that the reader that you know goes into like this law review article um, has a sense of like okay what where are we standing and then sees very structurally like what is the new argument added to it and so forth um, so it and but even there there is criticism that they are too long and too big so mm -hmm. I think there's a balance I think it's sometimes not even that much about like the length but also then being able to properly translate it and knowing which words and which language you use in which context and that's a challenge that you face once you step out like uh not just like your own legal tradition but just like outside your very specific group of people that know what you're even like working on and it if you try to explain that to like someone who does i don't know um, uh, uh, um, 
contracts um, somewhere in, I don't know, Brasilia, um, then you have to translate it to them in, 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 in other words as well, even though they are a lawyer and they're coming from a, from a, from a uh, civil law background. Um, and then if you try to work with people from other disciplines, um, um, you also have then again explained to them and also like find specific words or easier words to to translate what they're talking about just as a way they do that with when they try to communicate to me how machine learning works mm-hmm. um, in, in a way that doesn't mean that there is no value of first going like down that rabbit hole of really unfolding it for yourself because i think there is an additional step actually that you take from then making it from this high level of complexity again in a way that you're breaking it down to make it understandable for for other parts of society um Mm -hmm. that's why we have like these specialized disciplines in a way Mm -hmm. um and i think there is value in that yeah okay may i just open one last big issue if i if i may and and just ask you one more thing uh, that is of relevance in my view and and then um i will thank you for for your patience with my stupid questions uh this question is again coming to to one of your arguments which is this look at me argument that you are making so in in my reading, what you're stating here, please correct me if this is wrong. I, I, I simplify things, of course. Uh, in my reading, what you're stating here is that due to the um, increased usage of social media, people tend to speak more about themselves and about their feelings, their attitudes, their views on, on matters instead of an objective perception about how the world looks like, right? So you, you are writing here, I quote now again, these platforms meaning Twitter, etc. These platforms do not, however, only affect the product of legal scholarships, but also the scholars themselves. It is a truism that social media platforms cater to vanity. This adds a new dimension to communicating one's legal scholarship, at least in this immediacy and intensity. Until this day, it is commonly understood that legal scholarship is not presented from the first-person perspective. At least in the European context, legal scholars have been expected to say in a neutral manner what the law is and not to reveal to the public how they personally view an issue. This has dramatically shifted in the age of blogging and tweeting. The descriptive, almost passive third person is more and more replaced with the first person sharing one's thoughts, feelings, experiences, and so forth, and putting the I at the very center of these postings. End of quote. And my my question now would be, first, uh, I would, with all due respect, ask whether this is true. Because my reading of of more traditional readings uh, of writings is just the same. People explain to you how they think that the world should be, and they don't second don't tell you that it's them seeing the world like this, but they are just objectivizing this and hiding behind this objective. The world looks like this, and 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 I think everyone in critical studies and everyone having read Somek in particular <laughs> might have some kind of issue with this, you know, this objective approach to how the world looks like. Um, and second, um, my question then would be whether you think that this is a bad thing, because in my reading, uh, this is rather critical. The statement is critical that you're making, right? You're, you're, you're stating this is a critical tendency because or or is it or is it just again an empirical statement without telling us whether it should be or should not be avoided you have to answer it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I can I can I can try I think I think what the the main motivation that kind of came from the from that statement and if you actually read the paragraph below that that was mm-hmm. like oh by the way legal scholarship there are issues but it's like it they transform even before that there is like a lot of hierarchies and a lot of like who speaks and who says of course it would be naive to argue that the question of who is speaking has been irrelevant before legal academia is and blah, blah blah so so we do try to it it what what i think you you get to the point is like how it is phrased and how it is put mm-hmm. um what what i what i think is problematic and you see that specifically with topics that are, you know, very like um, also emotionalized for very good reasons on like from the human perspective, it it sometimes or very often actually blurs the lines between what the law is and what we then can make the law to be. Um, and it's particularly um, dangerous, I think, if it comes from people that um, know what the law is and um, uh, and and then you know 
the public may be relying on on their statements and 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 believing that and it, it's just like it's more about like blurring the lines online and additionally um i think i mean there are successful like accounts that just share their own like scholarship in a very neutral distant describing passive manner in a way of like as if they were reporting about like some other scholar writing something oh this paper came out oh i talked here at this it's always like additionally um um you know you, you you're supposed to also show a side of who you are as a human what you stand for um often the best things are like um like posts about your own experience or like how you feel about something um like also as a human. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. It's just something we need to be aware that these things are all of a sudden like um, mixing up because before that we would like have an author and their their book and, and we wouldn't necessarily even know what they look like or we've never talked to them. We don't know what they stand for, what they care about. We don't know pictures of their dogs or their children. Like we don't know these things. Um, and it just also changes like both how the public and also within the community like views a, a specific um, uh, person. Um, and, and that might then again have impacts. I don't know, but like that's what I think could happen is it has also impacts on um, like who you, I don't know, more sympathize with. Um, and then like how, or maybe like you don't like their political statement. So therefore you're not gonna hire him as a legal scholar or her as a legal scholar. Like it, it, it just, I think it's something that we need to talk more about and how to deal with it and the challenges come with it. I don't think that neither of us are gonna say that it's necessarily a, purely good or bad thing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, two points. First, vanity. It, it is, it, this is completely self-reflexive now. Um, I love publishing in newspapers simply because I like to be out there. So vanity is something that is, I think, enhanced by the more by the increasing opportunities that you have uh, in, in the blog sphere. But then something else happens, and I, I try to make it a more philosophical in the way I state it. Um, Hannah Arendt has reminded us of the fact that the public sphere is marked by two things, two factors. First, in the public sphere, we talk, we, we, we intend to talk about the same things, but inadvertently, the difference of perspective is something that is revealed. Yeah, it, it actually is something that is revealed in the manner in which we talk about it, that all of a sudden we, we are seen to occupy a certain position. And this means if you take a stand repeatedly on certain issues on the Verfassungs blog or another media and voice your opinion, you become identified with a certain position and people will ascribe a certain political attitude towards you. And when you ascribe a political attitude towards a certain person, you will then uh, react to what they publish by saying, well, again, he or she is infuriated by what Orban has done and so forth. So it is a, it is a result of the public, uh, the publicness of our communication that we become more personal in a sense and identifiable for our standpoints than we would be if we just try to hide it uh, in the traditional format where we occasionally write something about a, a certain topic and uh, yeah, mm -hmm. produce it in a cumbersome manner where we add a number of footnotes and so forth. So I think this is something that, that happens. Simply it happens by, by virtue of being out there in the public sphere instead mm -hmm. of oh, actually, I don't know. Mm -hmm. what I'm about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Sasha. Uh, just one uh, hint to everyone listening. If you would like to hear a little bit more about the Verfassungsblog, the editor of this, Maximilian Steinbeis, was in this was in this series here just some month ago. I will put the link into the show notes below. And interestingly, um, uh, I mean, the career path and also the publication path of Steinbeis is... Mm -hmm is also something worth listening to when, when talking about academic career building and so on. And, and it, it was not that easy to build that if you're, if you're listening to him. Uh, it's quite uh, astonishing. Um, thank you so much to the, to the two of you, Elizabeth, Alexander. Please, please, um, uh, to the, all those of you who are listening to this, uh, please consider again uh, reading this text. Um, the text is 
link to in the show notes below. There is plenty of additional food for thought in the text that we could not cover here. My apologies for asking too lengthy and too, too stupid questions. All, all, everything to blame on this to me. Um, thank you very much for listening. Thank you to the two of you for coming. I do hope that uh, we stay connected, that you stay interested and that all of us stay as healthy as possible or become as healthy as possible, as quickly as possible. All the best to all of you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.